Well, we get to start a new book of the Bible today, and the previous month we spent a whole month in the book of Esther, and that's one of the books that uh, you'll be reading in totality a little bit further on in uh, Immersed Chronicles. But one of the other books that you'll also be reading the full bit, and we'll cover a few little pieces over this month, is the book of Daniel. Daniel, And one of the things that ties all of the books that are a part of this volume, Chronicles, is that these are all of the stories that were written after Israel is in exile in various forms. So it's a part of the Bible that's written by when a people, God's people, are under duress, and they are exiled from their land, and they're left with questions such as, are we still the people of God? Or perhaps things like, what did we do to deserve this? And other parts of the Bible make it very clear that they, God allowed them to go into exile, in this case, for their repeated disobedience. This is not a one-off punishment for his people, but a series of poor choices over and over again. And ultimately, this leads to the rest of God's plan that we see play out most dramatically in the coming of Jesus Christ to earth and all that happens as a result. So I'm excited to dive into a new book of the Bible, and the book of Daniel is one that uh, not many people spend a lot of time in, but I wanted to spend a solid month in this book so that we can draw out some of the big themes. Now, when we were in the book of Esther, it was very clear that God was at work, but what was something that Esther did not have in that book? References to God. In fact, you won't find the word, the name God, Anywhere in the book of Esther, you won't find a single prayer or even an allusion to doing something. The closest you get is to the practice of fasting, which is what Esther does before she goes to meet King Xerxes. That's one of the spiritual disciplines and practices that actually Christians through the years have practiced, continued to practice. It's one of the things that... um, we often have done during this 40-day period of Lent is decide on some sort of thing, whether it's food or something else, to fast from for the purpose of drawing you closer into God's arms, to be able to listen to what God is saying in this moment. Some people, it's not just about giving up something, but it's also a step forward into what am I going to do in place of that? So for instance... um, One of the things that was popular, especially last year, was giving up social media, or at least all that excessive time on social media, but replacing it with something more constructive. Like maybe instead of that extra 10 minutes that I'm checking Facebook, I'm actually going to read one chapter of the Bible. Or I'm going to go on a walk and be praying for the people that I encounter as I'm walking through my neighborhood. And there's all sorts of different things that are doing. This year... um, I posted this on Facebook that, once again, I'm committing to fast 
before this period from food, and I said that for some of you, fasting from food is not a good option, especially if you have health concerns. But one of those things is a purposeful decision to want to listen more intently to what God is saying in this time. And so I invite you, if you want to participate, it's not too late to start something. I'm actually starting my fast this afternoon, um, and then that will continue for the next six weeks or so. So if you want to fast from something else, I know a few other people shared that they're going to be doing different spiritual practices in this lead-up to Easter. Um, Go for it. And if you've never done something like that before, you need a little guidance or an idea, I'd be certain, certainly happy to talk with you more about that. If someone asked you the question, who are you? What would you say? Three little words. Who are you? And if you thought, I know, it's a bit, it's a bit well, it's a potentially loaded question. And if you think of this, what would be three to five words that sketch a picture that you would say at least starts to describe who you are? Maybe start with one word. What would be a word that would start to describe a little bit of who you are? Servant. Okay, servant. And don't worry, you don't have to go for the spiritual answer either. You know? Ezra. I mean, I could say, I could say for myself, like, Rice Krispie Lover or something, you know? Something, something silly like that as well. Any other, any other words that you would use to describe who you think you are? Energetic. Energetic. Or for some of you, maybe the opposite of that. Honest. Honest. Health conscious, okay, hyphenated words are acceptable too. Worker. Worker, okay. Responsible. So I'm sensing kind of a theme of like traits. What, what about you guys? What would be one word that you think would describe a little bit of who you are? Inspired. In, inspired. Inspired. Nice. What? Shy? Yeah. Those are all those are those are all great answers too. Yes? Oh, I said determined. Determined. So you can see there's a lot of things that I think play into our sense of who we think we are, or who we at least know who we are in part. The Old Testament book of Daniel begins with this opening chapter, and it's a fascinating opening to speaking that speaks to that question of identity and how our identity, especially for those who are followers of Jesus, is tied most, most directly to who God says we are. And in the book of Daniel, one of the things that comes out over and over again is that question of how do we maintain our identity as it relates to God, especially in the face of profound pressure and stress. Sometimes people say even when you're under more stress, you become more of who you are in those moments. 
and sometimes we'll be put into positions that we can't always control. One thing as we read the Bible that we're reminded of is that if you are a follower of Jesus, then God says you are part of his people. And your fundamental or core, the most center part of your identity, is that you are called a child of God. Everything else is considered secondary, and at least is meant to flow from that primary or fundamental identity. Not necessarily who we say we are, but who God says we are. And we know ourselves most from whom God says we are. All of those things that you mentioned, and perhaps a lot of ones that maybe you didn't want to mention, flow out of that. And sometimes we're accurate and we're on the mark, and other times we're not. Maybe we don't have as clear a sense of who we are at that given time. If we're one of God's children, Daniel also speaks to the reality that we do not live in an ideal world, not everything works out, and we will be put into positions where we will be asked or forced to those questions of identity. And will we be able to maintain our identity when we're really put under pressure? Maybe it's a bunch of little acts over time, but when we're in the midst of life, it's not always easy to know how do I take a step forward if I am a child of God How does that determine the steps that I take forward? Not everything is super easy and clear for us. How do we practice and live out our deepest marker of our identity? And how do we stay faithful to who God says we are? So that the world draws closer to Christ. So we always have this big idea in the background. And none of these questions are easy. So if you're looking for an easy softball that, I can just, that you can just bat out of the park. You're not going to get that today. None of these questions are easy, but at least we're going to start the conversation. On uh, your song sheet on the backside, I put a couple of questions that you can refer to later on. These are some questions that can help jumpstart some of your own personal reflection and maybe even some of your communal conversations with, with other people. It's one thing to say on Sunday morning when you're surrounded by fairly friendly faces, I'm a child of God. It's another thing when it's a Tuesday morning and you've got somebody screaming in your face and you're like, okay, how do I show that I'm a child of God in this moment? Because I don't really feel like it at this particular moment. Let me read a little bit of the opening to the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can open up, or you can bring it up on your phone for those of you that prefer that. I'm going to set the table for us a little bit. Beginning in chapter one, in the third year of the reign, oh great, I have a lot of names, I remember. In the the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. 
One of the things that we don't always understand because we have such a distance from these cultural realities is that the concept of jurisdiction plays a huge role in this. Namely, that many people had gods for certain locations. There was the god of corn, the god of the harvest, the god of rain, and all of these little g gods that people would pray to. Especially in Babylon, they had a wide range of gods. And each god had sort of a jurisdiction of control. And so for the Lord God Almighty, the one God, to suddenly be in this position where the Lord God allows his people to be carried away into exile, people were, were questioning, especially outside of the Jews, Does he even have any control if he allows this to happen? And so there's all these things that are going on. But right from the beginning, it says God allowed this to happen in this way. All those things that they had spent so much time and care building for the temple, all those beautiful artifacts and ways to help them worship the presence of God, God allowed those to go away as well things that people had held near and dear for a long time. Yet even in defeat and forced exile, the Lord shows, yes, I still am in control. This is around 605 B.C., so 2,600 years ago or so, maybe even a little bit more. And the first first of three mass deportations begins. And the king of Babylon at this time, what does he do? He chooses the best and the brightest. See, one of the policies of Babylon is that when they conquered a people, they would take often the best and the brightest into their care to almost be in service to the king of Babylon. It was part of their, it was almost like their cultural assimilation program to do this. We still see this play out in very messy ways today. The king of Babylon chose young, teachable people. They were easier to assimilate into Babylonian culture for his purposes. Let me read a little bit more of the story for us, starting in verse 3. Then the king, this is king of Babylon, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, that's one of the tribes of Israel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, 
Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. It's interesting that we know the names other than Daniel, those three other of his friends, we know their Babylonian names more than we know their given names. It's one of those interesting things about the Bible. Daniel and the others in this group are teenagers when they are chosen. And let's be honest, when they are chosen, they don't have a choice in the matter. They are selected, and what the king says, just like later on with the king of Persia in the book of Esther, what the king says goes. Little does Daniel and his group of friends know that for the next 66 years, they will be captives. Albeit they will be able to be treated fairly well as long as they tow the line of whatever the king wants. For the next 66 years, they will not have their own free will in most matters. In essence, they are slaves of Babylon. In Babylon, they are taught to read and write and educated in the culture and customs of this new land that they are in. They're given a diet of new and strange food from the king's own storehouses and his personal choice of wine. The king, maybe he had a sommelier or something who recommended, but they are given the best so that they will be under his thumb. All of it preparing them for service to the king. It's an experience that if you were a teenager placed in that position must have been very overwhelming to suddenly see, oh, is this my lot in life? Everything about who they were, everything that made them feel and live as the distinct people of God was being stripped away from them their sense of identity. It must have entered their mind. How can I still belong to the people of God if everything that makes me who I am is being stripped away? And under these circumstances, these teenagers are faced with a choice. How to maintain their identity as God's chosen people in the face of such powerful cultural pressures. And beyond pressure beyond pressure to the point where if they choose something different, they will surely die. The king would not allow it. We come to the pivotal point in this opening chapter, verse 8. It's a decisional point, a turning point that will forever alter the course of their lives. Perhaps some of you have had a point in your life maybe not exactly like this, but a a point that has really changed the course of your life. Let me read verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. There's a lot of different opinions on why Daniel would choose to do this. And to be honest, we don't know for certain why this was the one choice that we made. And often we like to hold up Daniel and say, yeah, what a guy. He's resisting this oppressive culture. 
He's not compromising his faith, except the reality is that he actually already has made a series of small compromises in order to survive. He hasn't said no to the University of Babylon. He hasn't said no to being brought into the service of the king. But finally, for some reason, when it comes to food, this is where, this is his make or break moment. Why do you think that might be? We do know that Jewish culture had very explicit dietary rules. That is true. We know that there were certain rules and food choices that they made under God's law earlier that we read about in the Old Testament that were designed to help keep them sort of separate or distinct from the world around them. That is true. And those cultural pressures would be huge, far more than people's personal choices today. You know, if someone chooses to be vegetarian or pescatarian or vegan or any of the options, um, largely those are personal choices today. But back then, many of the dietary choices were ingrained culturally into the people. We know that food, culture, and identity are tied very strongly together. And so this decision not to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine is a big deal for Daniel to say no. Their very lives, he and his friends and the servants that were in charge of them, were on the line here. So at first glance, it seems like kind of a silly thing to make your stand. But at maybe a second glance, we see a little bit deeper of the cultural pressure going on. I'm, I'm just guessing, but I, I'm, I imagine that he could have uh, known something about what they did with uh, meat and, and drink as, as to their worship or yes. things like that. The vegetables didn't get the same attention. Yes, that is one of the other... One of the other um, considerations is that there is some belief that perhaps this is food that had already been sacrificed to other gods, and so it was considered blasphemous almost to eat this kind of food. That is certainly true as well. There's all of these things that are playing in, and what it is specifically or why Daniel makes this specific decision, we will never fully know for certain. I'm sure all of that plays a role. We do know that many cultures throughout history have very negative terms for other people related to food. The English call the French frogs. The French call the English roast beefs, and these are not positive terms. And other cultures throughout history have referred to other people groups by some sort of negative food connotation. To many of us today, choosing food as your defensive stand seems almost a little trivial or silly. For Daniel and this small group of friends, food and drink for them was an outward sign of an inner identity that God had given them. And in this choice, I believe that there was at least somewhat of a desire to remain faithful to what God had already told them, even in the midst of a foreign place. It was perhaps the only way that these young teenagers could see of maintaining at least a shred of their identity of who they thought they were. Let me read on in the story for us, starting in verse 9 again. 
Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Vegetables. No more cheeseburgers. No more sirloin. You're going back to rutabagas. The point for us to remember today is that food really isn't the issue at all. And it's never been about food. In fact, as we read later in Scripture in the New Testament in Acts 10, God actually abolishes the distinction between clean and unclean. Let me read just a couple of verses from Acts 10. In this chapter, Peter actually has a vision where he sees all these animals coming down on this sheet, and a voice from heaven says to Peter, kill, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. My whole life, you've said that these things are considered unclean for me to eat. Let me read the actual verse. He says, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And this is when God does a new thing in that moment, telling his people that it's never been about food in the first place. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Anyway, the story goes on. God has already blown apart this distinction, or he will in the future. At the point that Daniel is making this decision, this restriction is still in place. We know that it's for a greater purpose, that when God declares the boundary between clean and unclean, what he has made clean, don't call it impure, unholy, is all for this greater purpose because his good news will now go out to the whole world and is meant for all people in all times, in all places. One of my friends has been a vegan for a number of years now, and it's been a great 
healthy choice for him. But one thing that he shared with me about a month ago was that he often is invited into situations in people's homes. He's also a pastor. And his policy is people before food. So he will culturally eat food that he has served, even knowing that he will pay the price for it physically the very next day in order to maintain the relationship with the people that have invited him in. And I was, I was like, wow, that's actually a, kind of a cool way of going about it. People before food. He didn't want his personal decision to be a barrier or say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't eat that. Now, this is not for, he doesn't have a particular health problem. He's doing it for health purposes, though. Far more than animals and food, God has prepared his people for the good news to go forth. So if this account in Daniel isn't about food and wine or the health benefits of a vegetarian diet, those might be good things to think about, but that's not the primary purpose of Daniel, then what does it point us to? There's a couple of things I want to draw our attention to. First, this is an encouragement to God's people in every time and in every place. It reassures you that if you follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God will enable you to be and remain faithful even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of moments where you do not have a choice, even in the midst when you are not sure of how to even move forward. God knows your heart better than anyone. And in both this account in Daniel and in the account of your life, God is still in control. We see the control of God play out all throughout this story. Daniel makes a decision here. And I think that we too, when we make faithful decisions, even with the pressures around us, when we seek to follow God, God will help us. Maybe not in the ways that we always expect or in the ways that we want, but always in the ways that we need. Second, we don't live in a perfect world and there will be times where the step forward is unclear and you will have to make a good faith effort that the choice you are making is allowing you to maintain your identity as a child of God. We like things to be black and white. The world is often shades of gray. As a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. We've talked about that before. And you serve the high king, yet you are called to live here on earth in the here and now. We have a mix of many different cultures here. We have all of our experiences. We have an American culture, whatever that is happens to be. We have a California culture. Let me tell you, California culture is very different from some of the places that I've lived as well. And we have all sorts of subcultures that all play a part in crafting us into who we are today. There are moments when your identity as a child of God will press against these other identities and present you with a choice. 
The reason for this is what we've said. Because we don't live in an ideal world. No matter how much we want it to be made right, only God can bring that about. We're not always in situations where we get to keep making low-cost, easy or no-risk decisions. Sometimes we are under a lot of pressure. Daniel did refuse to eat the king's food, but he also asked permission from the person who was put in charge of him. But in many other ways, as we've said, he did not refuse what Babylon was offering. He took the name, he learned the language, he immersed himself in the culture. Daniel's world is similar to ours, a very imperfect place. And for you and me today, we have to recognize that as well, that the kingdom of God is certainly unfolding. Jesus himself in the Bible declared it to be soul, so that the kingdom of God is at hand, but we also know that it is not fully here yet. It's that now and not yet tension that we have to live with. And I don't know about you, but I don't always like that. What Daniel did know is that he had to remain faithful to the Lord as God even while he was living in exile in Babylon. So he took the choice that he thought was best. We are dual citizens, so we will always live with this tension in our world today. On one hand, we don't surrender our spiritual citizenship by fully assimilating into the world. That isn't living out the good news. On the other hand, we don't, we don't surrender our world citizenship by forming a bubble or a safe haven with walls that no one can enter in. That is certainly not living out the good news either. Neither extreme will lead to the good news going forth. So we walk this tentative middle ground, responding in different ways at different times. I've told you this. Some of you are probably sick of me repeating it. The good news never changes, but how the good news is communicated has always changed. Jesus himself showed us that. It requires hard work, an ongoing conversation, and faithful discernment as God's people to remain faithful as best we can. God has given us so many tools at our disposal. He's given us the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that will lead and guide us into all understanding. If we're willing to submit to the leading and to listen, let me read the closing verses of this chapter. This is after they ate their rutabagas. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the king of Babylon. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year 
of King Cyrus. When I read this, I see a lot of parallels to the story of Esther that we just concluded last week. That Esther was brought through this whole circumstance, a circumstance that was not of her choosing, and brought into a position, and what's that verse? For such a time as this. It's a verse that is well known. Similar to Esther, God reminds us here that he alone is sovereign over everything. That fact alone should give us great confidence in who God is and who God says we are. His plan, he continues to prepare us for the right times and seasons in which we too will be able to act. I said this last week, that you might be the only person that can take that particular step, just like Esther was. And here, just like Daniel is in this story. Those questions that I listed on the song sheet for personal reflections. How do you maintain your identity in Christ when faced with pressure around you? It's a hard question. And it's going to be a very personal answer. And I would encourage you to strike up a conversation with at least one, one other person. What are some of the things that you do to maintain who you are or who God says you are when you face pressure? Anyone can do it when we're not under pressure. But what do we do when we're under pressure? And then the other questions are designed to make you go just a little bit further. For now, though, it's enough to know that as followers of Jesus Christ, you are one of God's chosen people, a child of God. It is who you are. It is the deepest and most important marker of your core identity, and everything else, my friends, flows from this. Before we get a chance to come to the king's table, I invite you to pray with me. God, we give ourselves to you. Sometimes we have a clear sense of who we are. Other times it's a little murkier. I pray now in this moment that for all those who have chosen to follow you with their life, that you will once again, by the power of your spirit, remind us and allow us to fully believe that yes, we are yours. We are your children. And you enable us to remain faithful. You've given us everything we need. Help us to know this in this moment. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me close with this. As therefore you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him. May the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the blessing of God, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Have a great week, my friends. I look forward to seeing you again. God be with you.